You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you for coming tonight. Before we get started, um, I would like to, we're here on this beautiful land in this amazing pavilion um, in beautiful Melbourne, um, Nam, and I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the um, peoples of the East Kulin Nations and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that acknowledgement to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders uh, in the, in what, well, it's not really a room in the pavilion tonight. Um, tonight we are, I would say, I'm the novice amongst this panel. Um, I We're here to talk about built-in wellness. Um, what is the next frontier? Um, and I think we've got a really interesting panel of different perspectives to, to talk th about this topic tonight. My name's Addie Wooten. I'm the CEO of Smiling Mind. Um, and as I said, built buildings, architecture, is not my thing. So I'm going to be the curious uh, questioner on the panel, asking these amazing people some uh, questions to guide the discussion. And we'll pause for some questions throughout the evening. We've got about an hour together, so we'll make sure we stop um, at different sections and make uh, give you an opportunity to ask some questions along the way. But before I, uh, we get started, quick introductions. Um, so Kirsten Day, Dr. Kirsten Day is sitting next to me. Uh, she's an architect, lecturer and researcher and she brings 20 years ex um, in situ experience and exploration to this discussion tonight. She's published widely. She runs really dynamic, interesting workshops um, and looking at architectural profession and the human condition. So I would say you're one of our our leaders in, in thinking about this space. Um, Really interested in, in hearing about her thoughts around the neurodiverse perspective, which is an area of research interest for you. Um, next along the line, I have James Tutton. Now, excuse me while I flip my page. I don't know who he is. <laughs> so but I have to say the right things. So James is, um, James Tutton is the director of Neo Metro and also the co-founder of Smiling Mind. So he and I, do co-conspire from time to from time. To time. Um, he's been the director at Neo Metro for 12 years and has worked extensively in health and wellbeing with us at Smiling Mind. Um, as a developer, I think Neo Metro really sets the bar high in terms of thinking about built-in wellness and taking a really wellbeing-led approach to design. So really keen to hear your thoughts, James, about what Neo Metro are doing and how we can maybe push forward a little bit further in this space. And then finally, Finally, but no, by no means any more important, um, Nicole Imberger is a customer experience and innovation leader. So coming from that um, perspective of human-centered design, thinking about how we design our products um, to meet the needs of people. Um, and she spends her time helping organize it. Oh, did I just mute it? Did I just mute it? No. Yes. Um, uh, spends her time um, helping um, one second. <laughs> helping organisations transform their products and capabilities to be more human-centred and future fit. Uh, so looking forward to the conversation. So we're going to start with a, um, I suppose we can't avoid it, uh, COVID. Um, and thinking about the impact of the pandemic on how we live and work. The two worlds certainly did collide or many worlds collided for a number of years, particularly for us in Melbourne. Um, what did we learn from the pandemic and what can we take out of that experience from the pandemic uh, into the future? So James, we'll start with you. Thank you, Addy. Am so, I on? Yes. You're on. Excellent. Um, I, I mean, my experience of 
COVID, uh, you know, I think everyone had a very different experience and it was kind of like musical chairs and when the music stopped, um, that's where you were and what you dealt with and strangely enough, last time I was here uh, was uh, in, I think, January or February, as in here, uh, 2020, and it was the first event where I, I went and you couldn't shake hands with anyone. And it's a bit strange to be back here at the tail end of this whole thing. But I think for, uh, for COVID, you know, it, it recalibrated how we use homes. It recalibrated how we used offices. I think it changed people's... Um, appreciation and relationship with nature, particularly in public spaces. Uh, I know that for me, um, there are certain bits of the Yarra which kind of became um, my you know, core recreational space, not only in terms of physical health, but in terms of mental and emotional health. And I think that was a huge, huge change. I think people's experience of it, without a doubt, uh, you know, if you were sitting uh, on, you know, 200 acres in the country during a lockdown, you didn't notice. If you were sitting in a, a small one-bedroom apartment with two adults and two kids and homeschooling, uh, I think you definitely noticed. And so I, I think it was very varied, but it certainly did bring our focus, all of our focus, onto uh, what's in our homes uh, and whether or not that supports uh, well-being from a physical, mental, uh, social perspective. And, you know, I think that's a good thing that refocus agree i think the the our worlds were turned upside down and where we were at that moment in time had such a significant and profound impact on our well-being kirsten can you talk a little bit about the connection to nature and that the role that biophilia plays um i'm not sure if this happened but my house certainly became more full of pot plants uh during lockdown What's that all about? Yeah, so we have this um, desire to connect with nature. And it was interesting. I, um, I also bought a lot of candles during. <laughs> it's like I can't go out anywhere, but those senses. Um, although that said, and I think this is something that became really interesting, and I'll come back to your question. And if I don't, remind me to come back to your question. Um, the inequity about different suburbs, um, I'm really lucky. Um, we live not far from here and so there's Faulkner Park and then there's Botanical Garden. All the Botanical Gardens were closed um, and also Albert Park, although both of those were a bit like Burke Street Mall. But, um, but having those meant that we could, well, when you weren't attached to Zoom for eight hours a day because you're trying to sort of lock up all your meetings. Actually, one person who came out of lockdown really well was my optometrist. She made a lot of money because <laughs> um, every time she, I'd go back between lockdowns, she's like, your glasses have become, or your lenses have. Anyway, um, but so having that connection to nature, that desire, because we couldn't see it, uh, we couldn't go out. And so you have your hour where you can get out there. And so you're trying to find, you know, the place where I can go and touch a tree, except for plane trees, because I'm highly allergic to these things. Um, but it is that, you know, and you have other suburbs where you don't have um, sort of large trees that are around. You don't have extensive parks and things like that. So those things became actually quite difficult. Um, and those five-kilometre radius became a really um, interesting point. Um, we talk a lot about the 10-minute the city, the 15-minute city or 15-minute suburbs. But we're also looking about, you know, what does that five-kilometre radius start to look like? Um, so, yeah, in terms of biophilia, that, that, that connection to nature, particularly when you don't have that made available to you, um, becomes, well, there's a lot of research that talks about, um, you know, you don't actually have to have the real tree. You can have timber and other things which provide sort of a similar type of um, sensation where it is, a, it is about that connection, but it's, um, yeah, that desire for smell. Um, Wispworks made a lot of money out of candle orders, I think. It's like, it's smoke, it's moss, it's something that isn't your small apartment. Um, and so, it's, um, yeah, it became a really interesting thing. And a lot, of, a lot of the lessons from lockdown, I hope, are things that, you know, it was terrible and we really don't want to do that again. But there's lots of lessons that we learnt and hopefully we can then start to think about well, what are the places that we live in? Because it's not necessarily, you know, do we automatically go to sort of pre-COVID, so we go back to work, or do we have this hybrid workspace 
um, thinking about, you know, are we doing a four-day week and all of those types of things. Did I actually answer your question? Did I manage to dodge it? You, you, you dodged it, but I think yeah, you yeah. answered it. So, the, <laughs> the connection to natural, like, textures and and smells is really important yeah. for our well-being is yes. what I took out yeah. of it. Yeah, and, and even if, um, I mean, there's a couple of seminars I've done around the sort of biophilia, even just being able to look at an image of trees um, still has that ability to sort of sort of create in the brain sort of a, a bit more of sort of a calming thing. As Amazing. weird as it sounds, but yeah, it's, yeah. It makes sense, I suppose, that when you're sitting out in an environment like this, even though we're surrounded by many, many cars, there's a different feel, isn't there? Because we're, we have grass, we have trees, yeah. we have fresh air. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nicole, um, thinking about the social trends and priorities that emerged during the pandemic, what do you think got promoted and what got demoted? Um, and what did you observe about those trends that you think will stick post-pandemic? Were there fads during the pandemic that we, we're going to leave in the past? But are, And are there things that we'll bring forward, do you think, around those social trends? <laughs> I think that there were so many. So, <laughs> just talk about some of the ones that I think are interesting for this topic. Um, so, agreed, like there was a massive um, amount of focus on home. We all spent a lot of time in our home and we started to think about the home um, more in terms of all of the different jobs that it needed to do for us um, rather than just being, you know, the place that you sleep. Um, it was a place that you had to exercise and work and educate your children. Um, and, um, you know, interestingly, in um, 2020, I think home renovations, spending on home renovations was up 20% over the <laughs> year prior or something. I would imagine everybody here, their home probably looks a bit better than it did before COVID. Um, and um, also connecting in um, with your local community um, and the sort of solidarity that people found with each other and their neighbours um, and... Um, I think that's something that people want to maintain because they they recognise that um, there was a lot of benefit um, to that. Um, on the health front, um, you know, COVID was a massive boom for the wellness industry, um, and um, wellness um, is uh, you know was um, in 2020 a four billion uh, four billion four trillion dollar industry um, is projected to be by 2025 a, a seven trillion dollar industry globally um, and um, and uh, you know when you look at um, spending on wellness products and services um, you know it's far um, exceeds uh, GDP growth or <laughs> you know many other industries so um, people are really investing um, in wellness um, but I think the way people think about wellness um, is very different now from the way that they thought about it before COVID. Before COVID, um, a lot of us would talk about self-care um, and digital health, um, and it was very much more sort of me-centred. Um, whereas um, coming out of COVID, um, I think two things have happened. One is um, COVID gave us a renewed faith in science um, and, um, you know, a desire to see evidence for things. Um, and so people are taking a much more scientific approach to wellness versus just, um, you know, pre-COVID it was more natural and clean products. Now you want to know what are the ingredients and what's the efficacy of the products. And, um, you know, and I think that will endure. Um, and then also um, there's a huge sort of focus on social wellness um, now. Um, and um, when you think about built environment um, and real estate, um, one of the sort of biggest trends right now in development is um, social wellness clubs and, um, and uh, sort of these concepts that are bringing together co-working with um, wellness, fitness um, and socialising. Um, and bringing t people together in real life. Um, and um, does anybody, does everybody know Soul Cycle? <laughs> Soul Cycle, the like hugely successful fitness concept um, in the US. Um, well, they're recently um, sort of rethinking um, their business um, and they're launching um, uh, a new concept that is rather than being about physical fitness, all about relational fitness. Um, and basically just having um, conversations, um, which I think is really, really interesting, huge change. Um, and so, um, you know, that 
sort of in wellness. And, and then the you know third thing that I think is interesting coming out of COVID is COVID forced us all to go through a lot of change. Um, and we recognise that we have the ability to adapt to new things. Um, and we also realise the importance of being able to be resilient um, in the face of future change. Um, and so I think it's made many people uh, rethink um, how they want to prepare themselves for future change um, and drive lifestyle, um, new lifestyle decisions um, as a result. So interesting. The, the massive spike in investment in wellbeing is it having an impact from a putting my psychology hat on i would say it probably isn't we've like we're, we're experiencing at the moment the highest rate of mental ill health that we've ever experienced before so it's interesting that people are paying their hard earned money on well-being but are we getting what we want out of that um the social connection piece is also really interesting. I think um, KPMG did a study last year and looked at lonely, loneliness and more than a quarter of us uh, experience loneliness. Um, even more, if you're younger people, experience about 37% of, of young people experience loneliness. And there's a about a 25% increase in the risk of death if you are experiencing loneliness. So that's the extreme end of the opposite of wellbeing, I suppose. Um, but it's really interesting to see such investment in well-being. But are we getting what we we need out of it? Um, question to to you all, just to wrap up this section on on COVID. Do you think our homes are making us sick, or are we creating environments to live in that support well-being? I think we're questioning the places that we live in. Um, often. The designs of where we lived is based on us going home, cooking something, watching television, having a shower, going to bed and then you go somewhere and you do something else. Um, that ability to sort of work or to find a third space where you might sort of work an in-between space um, or even a space where um, it could be a studio or something where you can do something else is, um, yeah, there's that questioning of, you know, so what do we want our homes to do? Are they just containers? Um, but do we want a view? Do we want sort of cross-ventilation? Do we want a quality of space? So that if we're going to be surprisingly locked up again, um, that it's not going to be sort of the, the mental torture that it, that it was the last time. Are rooms big enough? Are the ceiling heights high enough? So it's not just about minimum standards. It's about a particular quality, I think, um, I was just going to loop back um, to what Nicole was saying before, and I think a, a real, and this doesn't answer the question at all, but I think it's quite relevant. There's been such an increase in terms of awareness around mental health off the back of, um, uh, you know, a myriad of things. I, I, I think in a lot of ways there was a growing awareness just in terms of social and cultural change. And then um, off the back of COVID where it just became, you know, people were more comfortable to talk about mental ill health and mental good health and the relationship uh, between physical and mental. And uh, as we do at Smiley Mind, look at uh, mental health in the or mental fitness in the same way we do physical fitness. And that's been a real shift. And it was quite interesting. I was driving today, I was stuck behind this um, tradie and he had um, the uh, suicide helpline, are you okay, etc., etc., with their logos on the back of his vehicle. And I thought that's not something you would have seen, you know, five years ago. And uh, so in a lot of ways, I think there have been positives which have come in terms of awareness, which then leads to advocacy. And that's, you know, probably a bit of a, um, a silver lining, though to your point, Addy, uh, where, you know, things probably have to go down before they come up in terms of, uh, you know, overarching, you know, good mental health. Maybe I need to be a bit more patient to see where that investment yeah. gets us to. Yeah, that, I, that's what I was going to say. I think we're a long way from where we could be. <laughs> and, but I think um, what's exciting is that people are really starting to recognise the connection between um, the environment um, and their lifestyle um, and uh, health outcomes. And also that you can... Um, that you can slow down and even reverse um, some of the ageing and sort of negative uh, health effects if you um, take um, the right actions. Will I get hair, like little... 
I'll return. Is, is hair essential for well-being? No, it's, not. <laughs> it's not good for skin cancer, right? But like I, I heard this amazing thing that if you um, if you start to eat the right food in a matter of eight weeks, you can reverse your um, your age by about three years. Like they can happen that quickly if you um, if you're doing the right thing. Absolutely. All right. We'll pause for a second now. Are there any burning questions? There is. There is a mic. One second. Just because I think this session's being recorded, so we want you on tape. Do you think there is a delayed reaction between sort of what we experienced COVID and the and and sort of and the I guess, the, as you said, it's like we're experiencing the greatest mental ill health that we ever have, but also the greatest investment. So do you think there's a delayed reaction where during COVID there were a lot of people that sort of just grinned and bared it, whereas now we're recognising that it was not okay, we were not okay, and we now need to... People are taking action to do something about that and to try and increase their resilience for the next time it happens... Because you mentioned solidarity and there was a lot of that and there was a lot of, you know, like, yes, we're okay relative to people who were doing very, very poorly. And, you know, especially in Australia, we were looking at case, the case numbers coming out of places like Italy and there were, you know, thousands of people that were dying every day. So we were like, yes, we are absolutely fine in comparison and then now there's this where everything's returning to sort of so-called normal where everyone goes, no, we're not okay and we haven't processed what happened during that time. Who wants to... Well, I, I, you know, I've got one comment on that. Not doesn't really fully respond to it. But I think there is a delay um, on multiple fronts and you know if you look at mental health and investment in well-being and mental health is just one aspect of that it does take time and I look at what we're doing with Smiley Mind and we're trying to basically drive systemic change from a generational perspective and that's something which you know it's not a year it's not two years it's it's looking at kids in primary school and then the resilient skills and other skills in terms of positive psychology which they'll take into their adult life and so that that does take a long time in terms of the other aspect of your question which is a bit like a kind of uh, post-traumatic stress Sorry. disorder yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know without a doubt you, you know where like I I certainly and you know this is just my lived experience I haven't really gone like I've uh, come out uh, and remained a bit of a hermit, you know. <laughs> and I, I, I got an invitation uh, to someone's uh, birthday party last night, and I looked and I thought, oh, that's so nice. They've invited me, and I thought, oh fuck, I've got to go. <laughs> and 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 I don't think I'm alone in kind of feeling like that. And and clearly, it's had a, a you know a deep and lasting impact on us, which will will take time to kind of move through. Yeah. Thank you, bang on. I, I, we, and we're seeing that in the loneliness data as well. The interesting thing about the loneliness data is, and it shocked me at first, but I think it's related to your hypothesis, and that is that delayed reaction. There's more people lonely now than there was during the pandemic. Um, and so that, that flow-on impact, I think, will take us some time to get through. Um, hello. Um, I'd just like to know, is there... Um the same, the same thinking um, uh, with all sectors of society and the same discussions going on everywhere because to me a lot of the statistics would be national statistics and, and they include everybody and there are large sectors of society that are living in very close proximity to each other like in, you know, in other countries, you know, India or South America, or, you know, the countries there, South Africa. Um, so the, the, the sort of real situations of, of people are completely different. And my question is, are we thinking and talking and designing for the upper echelons of society and how we build comfortable open spaces and, 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 and nice nice you know places to 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 live and 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 work um 
is the same thinking going on for for existing communities that that are still in very close proximity number of people per household and and a much more difficult you know thing to sort out and and improve people's lives great question are we just talking about an affluent society issue or is this something that's really relevant for everyone <laughs> it's a really it actually we had a phone call the other day and that came up um, as you know a really interesting issue and not talking about um, mental health specifically but talking about residential property and some elements of design which support good health good physical mental and social health which can be initiated from a design perspective and have a flow-on effect and we were talking about it and I put my developer hat on and talking about it in the context of what we're doing and we're actively developing in the likes of Brunswick, Thornbury, South Yarra, St Kilda and the obvious thing is that they're all affluent reasonably inner city suburbs and are there similar approaches to uh, design and development and placemaking and community building happening in a in, just in Australia in a broader context and you know I, I cited one example of a mass home builder who was initiating similar things um, but you know the bottom line is it's going to be something which kind of is culturally focused is my suspicion and then over time will become more and more mainstream and I think there are a lot of parallels between uh, you know well-being and residential property and sustainability from an environmental perspective where it was ultimately a very niche thing and then as time went by became a far far more mainstream uh, initiative and and then really crept out into design across the board um, others <laughs> I, I agree, and I think that um, you know already business and government are recognizing that there's a good return on investment in investing in um, uh, wellness um, rather than uh, dealing with disease in the community. and um, and so you see um, sort of in the commercial development space as well, um, developers investing in um, uh, wellness. Um, uh, incorporating wellness into their buildings and also into the uh, sort of ongoing management um, because um, you're already starting to see that um, those buildings get um, uh, higher lease, uh, longer lease terms and they get higher sort of rents per square metre because the, the tenants that are going in there recognise that there's benefit to their employees um, not getting sick as often and being more motivated in work um, and so forth. And at a government level, similarly, um, you know, some countries are um, in introducing roles like, you know, ministers for loneliness and, um, you know, uh, changing policy around um, to support wellness um, initiatives in the community and um, and so I actually feel as though um, you know wellness has the potential um, to uh, start to accelerate quite quickly <laughs> um, just that it, yeah it is a really difficult question because um, on one hand you know you've got a lot of you know new suburbs that are being built particularly sort of way out on the fringes and so it's not necessarily about um, the quality of space it's the first home or the thing I can afford um, but it is that sort of demand and and whether this is something that becomes more long-term because we can put down codes and standards and it's always about minimums and you know minimum height ceiling heights and minimum requirements in terms of the development of subdivisions and things like that but um, but whether there's a there becomes more of a, a, a cultural um, demand um, with those new communities that these are the things that we want. So we, we do want parklands that are there. We, we do want to be able to get out of our suburb in less than 45 minutes on a road. Um, it is it is difficult with you know, you know in public um, public transport and infrastructure and those types of things, but there should be there needs to be more thought and consideration about that because at the moment they're there isn't a lot. All right, we're going to move to our next... We're going to zoom out a bit and think about the system level. Um, Nicole, thinking about your comments about social trends and movements, 
are there visionaries or pioneers in this space that are doing amazing work that we can learn from? What are you seeing in that visionary space? Well, I think, I mean, I guess what I'm sort of encouraged by is that I actually feel like um, it's getting quite broad attention. Um, like having worked with um, sort of large uh, institutional developers um, across commercial and um, larger scale residential master plan communities and so forth, um, I think that um, there's a lot of care being taken and genuine investment um, in, in trying to um, uh, figure, figure out, you know, what, what the best solutions are. Um, and, um, you know, there's this movement called the more wellness real estate and, um, and uh, there's an organisation called the Global Wellness Institute that tracks um, progress um, on uh, wellness real estate and um, you can see that, um, you know, the number of projects um, that are being built um, that sort of fall into that category um, is increasing pretty significantly um, and, um, you know, the way that they define wellness is quite holistic. So, um, you know, looking at... Um, uh, looking at physical health, but also looking at mental health, spiritual health, economic health, um, quite broad um, definition of, of health. Um, so, um, you know, I guess that's what I think um, is encouraging. Um, I, I, I think, though, that, um, you know, what, I, what I'd like to see happen is that um, as a community of people who are working on the built environment, that we start to change the conversation a bit um, and help um, the consumer or people understand that it is actually possible <laughs> to ask for wellness um, in um, a home that they might buy. Because I think a lot of people don't even realise that that could be a criteria for them. You know, people are used to thinking about how many rooms do they want in their house or um, what's the location um, or maybe, you know, what are the views? Maybe what's the natural light? But beyond that, I don't think there's a language for how to talk about wellness um, but, you know, if you sort of ask this group, like, how many of you would like to be able to get a better night's sleep? <laughs> like, raise your hand, I would. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, we could talk about the fact that you could design a space um, that would actually optimise how you sleep. Um, then that might actually be something really exciting um, for a lot of people um, that they could then ask for. Um, and so I'd love to see that start to happen. And, and that, just jumping in, that's a lot more important than what brand of fridge is being put in. And that's a really interesting thing in terms of the actual, you know, metrics which are used around decision making in residential property at, at, at times are just so disconnected from what's, you know, what's pertinent to, to good health. And, uh, but that will, I, I think that will change over, over time, you know, is my suspicion. That's a, it's a really important point, I think, that as a consumer, you may not know what you need in order to have a good night's sleep. So, you know, not being on a main road maybe would be obvious, but other than that, how do we as the, the, the consumer know that that is an important factor to think about? Um, James, what is well washing and does it connect to this? Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I have to be careful. Um, you know, I, I think well washing is, you know, it's no different to grain washing um, as, you know, a concept, except it's not around environmental sustainability, it's around wellness. And, um, you know, there certainly is well washing. And, um, you know, that's not just in terms of uh, real estate and built form. I mean, we've seen it, you know, there was quite an interesting book uh, about mindfulness and it looked at mindfulness and how that had become kind of commercialised and watered down and misunderstood. And I think the same thing, um, you know, does happen more broadly with wellness and certainly does happen in residential property. But going back to consumers, I think there's a, there's a healthy cynicism. There was a story posted um, on a Melbourne-based media outlet last week where a developer had put in an exclusive wellness centre into a development in Collingwood. And um, if you could take the comments as a loose anecdotal um, uh, indication of the kind of 
eyes wide open approach from consumers to what was being put forward, it was pretty clear that the well, the, it wasn't working in terms of what they were putting out there. It was just people absolutely ripping into it going, why is this in Collingwood? This is a, you know, th there were doctors writing in saying that, that there's no proof that putting that in is going to do anything for wellness, et cetera, et cetera. And it was really, it was really fascinating. So I think there's a healthy level of kind of skepticism out there, which is, you know, is a, is a good thing. How do we move from well washing? Because the, the, the buzzwords, the trends will get that momentum when they like McMindfulness, that idea that, you know, if a developer pops a rooftop garden or a spa bath in, then they can tick the well, well, wellness box. Um, how do we move from that to authentically thinking about how we bring well-being into our buildings? I think it's awareness. And, and, you know, if, you know, effectively and in a really broad sense, if you can take academic research, put it into a format which is understandable by the, the lay person and then take it out there in an advocacy sense, then the approach consumers have is going to be very, very different because they understand uh, and will ask different questions and see when they're being, you know, told a, a porky. And ultimately, um, us real estate developers are, um, you know, attracted, for good or for bad, attracted to profit and um, not solely. I mean, there are other things which are very important to us and the industry. But I think when you see a, a consumer-led push for something, then you'll see major traction because it, it'll become quite, you know, it, people are asking for it, it will sell, and that will drive more substantial change. So that that's, I think, where the future lies, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, linking to that, if we're not going, maybe we can't rely on developers as much as developers are a good bunch of humans. Um, to lead this charge, what other industries, like do we need to change our conceptualisation of who leads this charge? What other industries, academics, what other groups need to be involved in this movement? Yeah, I think there just needs to be more conversations about um, and challenging ideas. Just because we've always lived in a particular way doesn't mean we have to continue to live in that way. Um, and I think, you know, COVID was the perfect example. Overnight, we were able to um, work from home, which is something it's like, no, you have to be in the office. We're able to do medical appointments online. Um, a lot of what I saw during COVID, I mean, apart from you know, we were all locked up, is there were a lot of benefits for people, um, particularly people with disability or people with um, physical and um, neurodiverse issues, because sometimes you just don't like being around people. And so th this was perfect. Um, but what I was, I was just going back to, um, we were talking about, there was a point that I was going to make, which was almost like, because um, I've been thinking carefully about how we greenwash things. And I'm thinking, thinking, how could I well wash something? And it would be things like putting a yoga studio into um, a residential development or putting a gym that isn't managed or putting a swimming pool that has no sort of oversight. It's, um, it's all of those things that sort of are there but a lot of people will go, like you might have these gyms and things but people will still go to MSAC because there are people there and then there's the people, you know, you can you can do your yoga class and you can make jokes with people and the teacher's just going, but we're meant to be breathing and you're just laughing. Um, but there is that sort of sense of community. So, um, but often what you, what you think you're buying and what you actually end up getting, and I'm probably talking about a lot of the high-rises that are going up in South Yarra at the moment, isn't, um, isn't where we're at. Which then was going back to what I was going to say, which was... Um, I forget. Um, <laughs> different different groups leading the charge. Yes. What about government and like town planning? <laughs> oh. Next question. <laughs> it's it's a difficult one. Um, this morning I did a lecture on codes and standards, um, and you know it is about minimum compliance, and so these are the things that you have to do to tick the box. And is that necessarily what we want to do? Because if we're talking about the places that we live and the places that we're expecting to thrive, so whether there's been a lot of work in um, in terms of offices and 
what I've been looking at in terms of design for people with neurodiverse issues. And so you provide a, you provide options about spaces where people might work. And so there's, if you're feeling like you just don't want to engage with people, you've got a place where you can retreat or if you're feeling overwhelmed, there's those other spaces. Um, whether you're hypersensitive or hypersensitive to different things um, in terms of sensory um, stimulus. If we're expecting those, because it is about um, how we, the occupational health and safety, but also how we might uh, performance in those spaces, surely we should also be thinking about the places that we live. And so we do have that, um, that space where you can just go, I've just shut the door and I'm now in my retreat zone and I don't have to deal with all of the other stuff that's outside. And so it is, um, you know, it's, it's thinking about thermal comfort, although I was listening, I was reading something today where they were talking about thermal health instead of thermal comfort as this idea, um, and which was the article that Alexi sent through, um, which has been really great because I've got a chapter that I've got to finish by Friday, and um, so I've got a few more citations now. Thanks. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting thinking about it rather than it's a container where things, we store things and we operate things. It is, you know, how does this um, help me um, survive? How does this support me as a human? So it's it's sort of that extension of health. Yeah. Yeah. Can I say something about that? Because I'm, I'm really passionate about this because I work with a lot of architects and um, I feel like the way that um, the industry presents um, buildings is... Um, just not very smart like you you see an um you know an ad for a development and um it shows you a bunch of renderings and there's a lot of you know marble bench tops and luxurious <laughs> uh, materials. materials um but actually buildings are becoming more and more um uh, complex and there's a lot of technology in buildings um, and so, you know, I often think, well, what if buildings were presented more like Dyson um, talks about a hairdryer or, um, you know, some of uh, like a, a, a technology product um, and you actually explained like how does it work and, you know, why does it work and what's the benefit um, that it brings and the impact that it has um, so that the person <laughs> who you're talking to um, sort of actually gets it. Um, and, um, and in my mind, that's not well washing or green washing. Um, that's just having a really transparent conversation with somebody and allowing them um, to understand. And I feel like we should be doing a lot more of that sort of thing. Um, as an that's really interesting. The, uh, the, it's really interesting, I think, your comment about MSAC and not people going to MSAC rather than the pool in their building um, and that idea of explaining how things work to people before they buy, is it about, like, is it about creating a community or creating something around the building um, as well as within the building so you've got that retreat um, rather than thinking about we're just building buildings? Um, and James, I know you spend a lot of time thinking about that community design in, in some of your projects. Like, it, that, it sounds to me like it's... It's not about the things necessarily, it's how we interact with the things and how we interact with other people. Well, I guess this is probably when you're thinking about where you locate a development. So what are the, what's the surrounding infrastructure around that? Um, what supports that? What makes this particular location attractive? Which then also means that as we're developing new suburbs, we should be ensuring that there are things out there so that these places are attractive and you're not having to sort of drive 45 minutes to get to XYZ. We keep talking about 45 minutes. It took Addie and I both 45 minutes to get from Fitzroy to here, which says a huge amount about congestion. You should live south side. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's interesting because one of the, um, you know, we about 10 years ago had this initiative around high-density happiness and it, it, looked, uh, it looked at the drivers and it took some research which had come out of University of Western Australia um, and... Uh, looked at the drivers of community building within apartment buildings. And one of the really interesting things is uh, people benefit from shared infrastructure, which they can opt into, um, but aren't forced into. And a good example would be, you know, shared washing machines. No, people don't like that so much because you need a washing machine. Um, and, you know, at times you may not want to share washing your underwear with your neighbours. Uh, but uh, spaces like uh, where there's, uh, say, natural 
gardens, natural planting, um, which attracts bird life. It has the benefit of, you know, humankind's wonderment with nature built into it, but you can opt in and out of actually using that, and that in turn helps uh, build forms of uh, forms of community and just talking about management of properties a really interesting thing is what what can help significantly drive well-being within residential property it's not just the built form it's some of the ongoing management of it as well and so that's you know things as simple as you know what cleaning product is being used in common areas you know i've got a friend who lives in a development in uh, north fitzroy and they just use the the oc just uses the worst product and you walk in there and you stink and you think what carcinogens are in this thing and that's easy to control it's just a policy thing but but people historically haven't been thinking about that. Yeah. All right, we're going to pause there for a minute. Any burning questions? The mic is coming your way. One minute. Yeah, thank you. It's a really interesting conversation. Um, I just wonder what your thoughts are about air quality. Um, I mean, James, you're just talking about you know cleaning products, but how are we doing on residential air quality? Because this has been my experience in living in homes recently. Uh, a lot of mould as we're closing up houses and we're all spending a lot more time in there. Um, you know, cars with attached garages, so you drive your car in and it, it proceeds to evaporate. A whole bunch of emissions go straight into the house. Um, the carpets are off-gassing a whole lot. Um, we've got no ventilation in homes. If you don't open your windows, you don't get any ventilation. We're getting tighter and tighter homes. Can we... Um, um, you know, think about differentiating homes by saying, well, look, you know, a, a developer could say, or a builder could say, uh, or you could ask for a, an air quality test. Yeah. Um, and so let's, let's see some proof that these homes are actually healthy because many of us are experiencing really unhealthy levels of air quality in our homes and we're spending more and more time in them. Um, th really interesting topic. Uh, and, you know, I, I come to it uh, very subjectively. I'm someone who needs really good airflow, particularly at night, otherwise I don't sleep, and so very, very pertinent thing. Coming back to, um, you know, broadly in terms of residential real estate development, we, um, and I'm putting my Neo Metro hat on here, um, looked at a whole series of kind of basically six pillars of drivers of well-being, which can be incorporated into architectural briefs, which then flow through to built form and the apartments or townhouses which people live in and air is one of those pillars and it's the flow of air, it's the monitoring of air, it's access to air, it's it's doing developments to the point before which are, you know, not located in, you know, areas of severe pollution whereby no matter what you do, you're not going to get good quality air. And it's it's a major driver and something which I think needs to be elevated in terms of discussion so that consumers are aware of it uh, when they're, you know, buying, not once they've moved into an apartment or townhouse or house and then suffering the consequences of, of poor air quality. So very, very relevant point. This is something we were talking about the other day is whether there's, I mean, we have ratings for energy ratings and things like that for buildings and whether there is, um, there's something that can be developed around residential housing that would that would say, you know, if you are buying into this, there's a particular, we've, we've paid attention to air quality, we've paid attention to the materials that we've selected so there's no off-gassing. Um, how, how you go about doing that is, a, is another thing altogether, but whether there is sort of a way of, of, of guaranteeing that um, the qualities that you're after are actually there and not just sort of a, well, I've, I've bought this, I guess, it's okay. Um, yeah, how that works, I'm not entirely sure. It's, we, we did, and we say we, putting my Neo Metro hat on again, we did have the idea of effectively creating the... Um, you know, National Heart Foundation tick of approval, but for residential property, where we created, uh, based on research, metrics which addressed, you know, a whole gamut of different things, and then uh, developers would need to, you know, we wouldn't own it, it would be an independent body, but developers would need to apply for that. Um, and, you know, it's no different from you see on food, or you go and buy a fridge, and there's an energy rating there doing, doing a, a similar thing. Ultimately, we opted not to do it, we opted to keep stuff 
in-house, happy to share it with others because we see that as the role of advocacy. Uh, but, you know, there's definitely an opportunity there for someone to do something. We are seeing um, air quality testing coming into commercial buildings as part of a sustainability rating. Uh, we're not seeing any signs of that coming into single-family residential, for instance. That's a really interesting area. Nicole's probably more abreast of this than I am, but my general observation is that office buildings, from a, a well-being perspective, are more advanced than residential property, which is absolutely insane, but it it's, it's just seems to be what's happened, particularly in this country. Any other questions? Oh, there's another one. Hold on. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would like to address the collective groan around town planning because I think that's a, and especially sort of talking about your, you know, your system of metrics and that sort of thing. Like how do we, how do we address that? Because it's, it's all well and good if you've got some really great developers who actually care about the stuff and are really trying to push the bar and, you know, advocate for advocacy. But what about the people who are abiding by the minimum standards and who are just skating by on the minimum standards? Like how do we raise that bar so that, the, you know, the, the maximum portion of the population are benefiting from this? Because it sort of goes back to that, you know, that question around equality in, you know, in building and, and, and price points as well, because a lot of people just buy what they can afford and they think about air quality and livability and that sort of thing later on um, and then it's just something that you have to sort of bear with but how, how do we actually like do we need to overhaul the planning system do we need to get rid of planning entirely and have it like how what is the and I, I recognize this is a very difficult question but like what are you know what are some ideas about what we can do because it's it's a it's a real issue when people when like the vast majority of buildings and developments are getting by on minimum standards. Who wants to take that one? <laughs> <laughs> I can try. Um, and I had a really good thing that I was going to say as you were talking, and then it's just gone over there. Um, I think it has to be a consumer-led thing um, because I think. The difficulty we have um, in having sort of states responsible for their own building and planning and then delegation to municipal suburbs, unless someone brings it in, it, it, it's sort of a, how, how does all of this happen? It's, it has, I think it has to be a consumer-led thing because to rely on planning, there's so many variations um, you know, we, we take something to VCAT or there's, you know, someone has a lot of money they can throw at something and, you know, or better lawyers or a better planning um, person. I think, yeah, I think it has to be a consumer-led thing because I don't think in that sort of quagmire of stuff it will get any traction. Uh, you know, I would, uh, you know, I there has been government involvement, obviously, but if you look at... Um, environmental sustainability in residential property in the last five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, it's shifted dramatically and a lot of that is through consumer awareness and you just start getting this momentum and it, it, something becomes mainstream and I think we're going to see a similar thing here. And, you know, yes, you know, maybe at the moment in terms of wellbeing it's a small band of residential developers where it's even on their radar but time has shown that that ultimately replicates. I mean, you, you, you like what we were doing from a neo-metro perspective, uh, 10 years ago other people really weren't interested in, in doing it and then you know there are not being flippant or arrogant about it but there are some kind of mini neo metros out there which is a really really good thing because you've seen the quality of residential development I, you know I, I'm biased in saying this improve uh, because a couple of people have kind of taken a, a bit of a lead on it and I think the same thing can can happen. No, absolutely, and they are leaders, and they are great. But it's—I I, think—it's—it's it's just it's really disheartening where the most vulnerable people are are sort of impacted because you know a lot of people people don't don't have the they don't have the money to drive necessarily to drive that power. So it's just you know. So I I, I feel like essentially what everyone is saying is that the system is really broken, 
and it's just relying on people trying to do good that that increases advocacy, which is, you know, and it's amazing that there are some people doing it, but it is it, that's that's quite sad. Um, is it too simplistic to think about the energy star rating that you talked about before and what happened then? You know, is that now in, in every new build and could a similar approach be taken like to air quality, to those sorts of measurable parts of wellbeing? I don't see why not. I mean, it, it, would, take, it would take time um, and then uh, with time there becomes an expectation and then you have a group of people who start to do that, then you have the, the people who then follow on going, oh, that's a really good idea, or I want something like that, but, you know, 60% or something. Um, but, yeah, I think it just it just needs people to just start taking that charge. All right, we're running out of time. In fact, we're pretty much out of time. So, one, this is my final question to each of you um, to wrap up this discussion. This session is all about the next frontier. Um, is there unlocked potential in our built environment, in our homes, that could radically transform our well-being in the future? In two words. Oh, in two words. <laughs> well, I, I, kind of what we've been talking about, I think, um, you know, I, we're all start. The, the science is telling us that... Um, we need to make adjustments to our lifestyle um, and the way that we're living. Um, and if we do that, it can have profound impact on our health outcomes. Um, we can live better longer. Um, and um, the way to achieve that um, is not by, you know, doing all the bad stuff um, most of the time and then doing some like good things every once in a while to compensate. Um, it's about establishing really healthy habits, right? Um, and so I think that your home um, and the built environment that you live within um, can be the scaffolding for those healthy habits um, and um, you will just end up making good choices by default. That's what I hope happens. Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. James? I second that. No, no, because it is, it's, it's so much about kind of setting a baseline of habit and part of that is, you know, the design and the choices one makes in terms of residential homes, right, obviously. And then, it, you know, habit builds on habit. It, sometimes it goes in the wrong direction and hopefully it goes in the right direction and there's huge opportunity. Kirsten, final comment? I think when we're thinking about our built environments, we should ensure that what we design doesn't segregate people. So whether it's um, whether it's someone with disability, or whether it's permanent or temporary, that they'd be able to access places. Um, for those who've had babies and pushed prams around and tried to sort of get around into shops where the pram doesn't fit particularly a few years ago, oh, about 50, 20 years ago. How old are you now? 18 and a half? Yeah. <laughs> Um, trying to get through JB Hi-Fi because the sort of the four-wheel drive pram was the big thing at the moment at that, that time, and so but it was too big for aisles. Um, or yeah, the the skateboarding accident, and so you're on crutches and being up, not being able to move through spaces as easily as you would. Or whether you have um, you're somewhere on the spectrum, and so you can find spaces that are quite overwhelming. And so we should be th thinking about all. Uh, um, toilets um, and things about, you know, how different cultures might um, experience space. So really thinking about from a user-centred um, point of view rather than it's gold or it's shiny or it's got luxurious materials. It's, we, should, we should demand and expect more of the spaces, not just the spaces that we live in and we work in. Interesting, um, and I know we're running over time, um, the uh, new British standards for design for neurodiversity, which is also for public buildings, so BBC um, in Cardiff now have this as part of their space, but also extending that to things like train stations and airports, the most stressful environments possible, where you do have spaces where you can just calm down. Um, there's a bit of nature to sort of focus on and that there is an expectation that the the environments that we design and that we live in support us rather than sort of agitate us. 
Wow. Well, I certainly learnt a lot. I think uh, what I will take away from this discussion is that well-being isn't about the things that you buy or you add into a building. It's it's much more than that. It's about thinking about how you connect to nature, how you connect to people, um, how you design for a whole range of different needs. And I think that um, accessibility piece is really important. How do we do this in a way that isn't just for the rich um, that can afford it? It is for everyone. Um, so a good start to the conversation. Clearly, there's a lot more to do, but thank you very much for joining us. Um, please thank our panellists and have a good night. Thank you. You're listening to an Empavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.